Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So the uh, Department of Justice released, uh, after a leaks, leaks last week, telling us the uh, top line, released the crime statistics that it has collated uh, for the year uh, 2020, and they are disastrous. The largest spike in the murder rate in American history, I believe, increased in thir- an increase of 30%, aggravated assaults up. The only form of crime that seems to have been in decline, which is actually the the mo- most numerous crimes committed uh, in the United States, which is uh, robbery, uh, sort of like, you know, invasive robbery, were down a 5%, I assume, because so many people were actually at home during the pandemic, and so therefore burglaries did not did not take place uh, as uh, as frequently as they, they, they do in other years. Uh, so uh, this would indicate uh, that uh, we had a perfect storm as we were watching it, and we knew it was happening, and everybody knew it was happening, and people decided or people in the liberal chattering classes decided to ignore the dovetailing of the liberalization of bail laws and crime laws and uh, uh, new radical ideas about ending imprisonments and releasing prisoners, all of which uh, began really in 2018 or began being implemented in 2018, came to fruition in 2019, and then had the deleterious consequences that we saw in 2020. Uh, we can sort of go, go into a lot of that. But uh, it, what, one of the things that is notable is that in the, in the h- horrible years of the 80s and 90s, when, when the crime rate was out of control, large cities were the drivers of the crime rate, something like, I don't know, 15% of all the murders in the United States took place in New York and Los Angeles in aggregate numbers. And that number, I think, was 4% last year, which means that this is a nationwide trend that is actually having uniquely horrible consequences in smaller cities, like cities between with populations between 20,000 and 50,000. Okay. What do we make of it? Uh, well, uh, it's... it's Something to note um, is that the 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 thirty percent spike in murders didn't really take effect until um, the kind of the early summer of last year. Uh, in the first few months of the pandemic, murder was up something like nine percent. Um, so I think we can't ignore everything that took place. Uh, uh, that May and June in relation to the nationwide protests and the anti-police rhetoric and the police reticence as a result of it. Um, I think, I think that that's where things sort of really took off. There's also the, the, another part of this whole perfect storm for these really terrible statistics um, is that court, the court systems, the criminal justice system ground to a halt during the pandemic. Things went virtual, things were closed down. So what that meant is that lower level criminals, instead of being held 
prosecuted, processed, convicted, locked away were released. And, you know, you see the effects of this. Some of those people are, in fact, also violent criminals. So there was a case this just this past weekend in the Bronx in New York, where a 15 year old who'd had numerous charges, including, you know, uh, possession of a a gun, all kinds of pretty serious uh, felony charges, but was released after everyone ended up stabbing and killing a 17 year old. This is someone who should never have been out on the street. There were numerous cases like that in, in many cities across the country this year. As a result of the pandemic, that's also combined with years and years of effort on, beha- on behalf of these progressive prosecutors to attack the very idea of uh, aggressively prosecuting violent criminals, and p- particularly people who, who are using weapons in the commission of the crime, guns in particular. Broken windows theory, dating back to the early 1980s when it was promulgated by George Kelling and James Q. Wilson. Broken windows theory says that uh, if you, if a building, someone throws a rock and breaks a window uh, in an abandoned building and that window is not repaired, 30 days later, every window in the building will have been shattered by a rock. And the, uh, the analogy here was what broken windows policing led to was the idea that all crimes need to be dealt with from the petty to the most severe because the population that transgresses and commits crimes is a concentrated small population. And that in the classic New York City example, a person who jumps a turnstile rather than paying a fare arrested will likely be somebody who has done other things and for whom there is a warrant out for other crimes. And so if you pay attention to lower-level criminal offenses, you will solve higher-level criminal offenses because everybody doesn't do everything. And that this is a... Class is the wrong word of people. This is a cohort of people who live in a different way from other people. And their behavior is consistent across transgressive boundaries. And therefore, you can both deal with the... By, by, by looking at all of this as though, it, as though criminal activity is criminal activity writ large, you can solve the broken windows problem. Because you will, in effect, not just the analogy... If you remove the person who throws the rock, who breaks the window, the window won't be broken in the first place. That turned out to be the hallmark idea of the most successful public policy in my lifetime, which was the crime reversal uh, that began in, in 1993, let's say, and really accelerated in the mid to late 90s. There's never been anything like it. We saw a drop in crime of 80% nationwide. Uh, It was a remarkable achievement. And of course, then over time, everyone takes the achievement for granted. People start complaining about the draconian measures that appear to be used and sometimes were used because as the crime rate dropped, the search for more criminals starts getting more and more intrusive because you're not pulling off low-hanging fruit. You're not just... 
the people who are jumping the turnstiles, there are a lot fewer of them because you've arrested them, you found out that they did other things, and they've been sent to jail. And so uh, the search for criminals starts becoming more intrusive. It maybe starts affecting people who are not criminals, who are looked at as criminals, and you get a cycle that is that ends up where we are now, which is a an idea that... Uh, crime prevention and uh, criminal prosecution are themselves unjust. Well, and, and worse than that, if I could interrupt just to say post George Floyd, the, the other overlay of that narrative is that they are in, in just by existing, just by, by policing itself is racist. Criminal justice system itself is racist. And they point to these, you know, they talk, uh, the sort of intellectual elite who promulgate these theories say things like, oh, we have a carceral state. This is Jim Crow. It's terrible. You know, there's a whole narrative that is absolutely built on an unwillingness to confront a horrible, stark reality, which is that the, the main reason we have a higher percentage of African-Americans in prison, it's not drug crimes, it's not property crimes, it's violent crimes. That fuels almost the entire disparity. And this also means, by the way, that the, the victims of those crimes are also far more likely to be black than white. So the, the, the reason you have more black people incarcerated for murder than for all drug crimes there's a higher percentage of white people in prison for drug crimes than black people in prison. These are facts. More than half of all homicides in this country are committed by one racial group. This is a horrible thing. And their victims are also from that racial group. This is something that as a society, we do need to confront. We need to deal with. There is no way to deal with that in the current environment in terms of discussing it by race, because you're not allowed to say the factual information and try to get at root causes. Now, there are great groups who have been doing this for decades. And I, you know, they, they have shown us ways to kind of use good community policing and de-escalation of violence techniques. There are ways to do this. But right now, the national conversation really won't allow for that kind of discussion. Well, because progressives who defend these sort of, you know, de-policing maneuvers, <clears throat> reducing policing efficacy, um, they comfort themselves with polling data. And we don't have a lot of polling data that's not ambiguous. So people do perceive crime to be on the rise. But there's also plenty of polling data that suggests they don't want uh, to, you know, address that through excessive policing. Um, depends on the poll you find. And so mostly, you know, Progressive have convinced themselves this is all perceptual, and so it's not going to be a political problem. We, and again, because we have a dearth of polling on the issue, they can justify that claim to a certain extent. But I want to bring some Gallup numbers to the conversation because um, Gallup's been asking this question for twenty years, so you get you know apples to apples comparisons. So, and from this year, the data in this year, which justifies the progressive position, are you afraid, for example? to walk alone at night anywhere within a mile of your house. Only 29% of people say that. 70% of people say, no, I feel safe in my local neighborhood. That's their comfort blanket. However, when you talk about whether people are worried about crime, according to Gallup's numbers from this year, 78% um, say they are, um, compared to a minuscule number who are not. Are you satisfied with our current uh, policing measures nationally, presumably. Um, that's 65% of people say they are not satisfied. Uh, and only 27% say they are. And as of 2020, we don't have new numbers from this, but as of 2020, 78% of people said that they believed violent crime was on the rise, which is true. 
Um, so the perception, if it is just perception, which I don't think is a material distinction from whether or not this is actually a real political problem, but the perception leans in the direction that Democrats are presiding over a nation with a violent crime rate. That is a political problem. There's no two ways around it. They can talk themselves into believing that it's not real, just like they're talking themselves into believing that the $3.5 trillion bill that they're trying to pass actually costs nothing, but they're just working themselves into a paradigmatic froth um, compared to what everybody else is observing, and it will bite. I think it's worse than you're characterizing it, because the question is whether... The case can be made, which was the case that effectively destroyed the Democratic Party in the late 1960s and would have kept them destroyed had it not been for Watergate, is the question of whether their policies actually put them on the side of crime. Not that they're ignoring it, not that they're talking it down, not that they're being ostriches and putting their head in the sand, but that they advocate, promulgate, and support policies that are increasing crime and threatening ordinary non-criminal people. And I'll give you just two... uh, Christine mentioned the progressive prosecutors in, particularly in Philadelphia and in uh, San Francisco, uh, who are the the to the two most visible? But there there are others. Andy McCarthy wrote this great piece for us called the Progressive Prosecutor Project, um, which you should look up uh, and get all the relevant data on who they are. There's also, I think, San Jose, California. There are a lot of different places where the prosecutors are are actively using policies not to pursue prosecutions of criminals. And they're all Democrats, obviously. They're all radical Democrats. And so Democrats are going to own that. That's number one. Number two is the border. And this, I think, is a key element. Uh, Understanding why this will never go away, despite the fact that liberals and the media do not want this association, which is you have rampant lawlessness going on at the border with, you know, intermittently tens of thousands of people challenging the sovereignty and the laws of the United States with their behavior. And one party, only one party, is associated with the idea that the people at the border who are challenging the criminality are in the right and that somehow the enforcement of the laws as written in the United States is wrong. Um, and that's there and ever present. And it, and it, and it, it, uh, it flares up every couple of months. So we had this latest Haitians under the bridge in Del Rio, Texas, who seem to have been moved out, but there will be another surge in August or in September. Abe. Well, the parallels, the parallel between the, the, the crime issue and the border issue, I think, are striking it because when you look at the crime, the thing about the Democrats and the liberal push uh, against police to defund police, to supposedly reform police, this happened at the very time that most Americans turned on the TV and saw riots going on coast to coast, arson, all sorts of madness. And that's when Democrats chose to say we have a police problem, not we have a not we have a, a, an anarchy problem or a crime problem. We have a police problem, and similarly, you see what's happening on the borders. These 
15,000, 12,000, whatever the number was of, of, of uh, uh, Haitian migrants under this bridge, that's the moment the president, the Democratic president, stands up because of a, a, a viral picture and says, uh, the people, uh, the, the, the border, border patrol agents on horseback are going to pay for this. This is wrong. We're going to, they're not allowed to use horseback anymore. So now we're going to hobble border patrol at this very moment. And, and there, there are more migrants coming, um, up, up from the South now, uh, more Haitian migrants in particular too. Like, like there's, there's reason to expect, um, another group, I don't know, a month from now or so. So like the crime, this is going to get worse as a result of the democratic response. Right. I'm quite sure the left is very sincere about their freak out with this creation in their minds of this, you know, anti-bellum, you know, display of violence against black migrants. But I I don't think the White House is sincere about that. I don't think the White House is doing anything other than distracting from the 12,000 people under the bridge. That's what their immediate problem was. And then they had a way out of it, a very comforting, familiar place to go. And they went there and it worked for them. But but I I don't agree. Yeah. Go I ahead, just would say, just very briefly, even if they're not, and I don't know if they're not, even if they're not sincere, the message that comes down to those charged with protecting our borders is hang back, ex- right. which is exactly what the message that the police received right. in the wake of the George Floyd. And that was the message, and this is where everything old is new again, that was the message that was received by law enforcement in the late 1960s and early 1970s when there was a spasm and the famous thing that people said was uh you know the elites care more about the criminals than about their victims and um aside from the fact we're talking about politics but uh their real world considerations are that america was an unsafe country and certainly large cities were unsafe places from the mid 60s until the mid 90s they were not safe places and people ended up changing the way they lived, changing the way they acted, changing the way they changing what they allowed their children to do and all of that over time uh, in a way that a generation and a half that has never lived under those strictures, you know, feels uh, liberated from the knowledge of what happens when the lead opinion turns against uh those whose job it is to protect everybody else from the bad guys. And that happened once before, and it had horrible consequences. And a lot of it was supported by a judiciary that had been seduced, essentially, by a lot of these ideas about how rehabilitation was the way to go and not uh, punishment and you... You needed to integrate people into society. The problem was really that they were poor and not that they were, you know, uh, afflicted with sociopathy. And and we did a gigantic national experiment in liberal criminology that it took 20 years for the Democratic Party to recover from. Remember, Richard Nixon runs in 1972. What is he? Where where is he? The country is in a terrible economic condition. We are in this war that is in a stalemate. Uh, He's done all kinds of things. You know, this was not a good presidency 
from which to run re-election. And he ends up winning by 25 points against somebody whose domestic and foreign policies dovetailed as follows. We were to pull out of the world, come home America. We were to pull away from Vietnam, give up, pay everybody $1,000 to help them, and essentially enshrine this attitude about uh, American domestic life that uh, we needed to treat uh, the criminal class with um, compassion instead of, again, siding with uh, the victims and the potential victims instead of the criminals. And they lost by 25 points. I mean, McGovern lost by 25 points in a not great atmosphere. And again, if it hadn't been for Watergate, we would not have seen a single Democratic president between 1968 and 1992. And how did Bill Clinton make it through in 1992? He executed a mentally deficient guy named Ricky Ray Rector. And a guy named Joe Biden, whom you may have heard of, spent years as as uh, in his position as head of the Senate Judiciary Committee pushing tough-on-crime measures, creating a drug czar's office, uh, changing, you know, uh, adv- you know, going with the three strikes laws, all kinds of things that said to people that the Democratic Party had learned its lesson. But, but this is another example of how our particular cultural moment right now, there's another perfect storm brewing that has implications for, for crime. And that's this, the idea, the argument now isn't just, oh, it's poverty, we have to alleviate poverty. It's the trauma of systemic racism is, is, the, is the excuse that's made for the high violent crime rates in certain communities. And that's been amplified um, embraced and promoted by not just the ideologically progressive left, but the mainstream left. This is the language of equity. When it trickles down, it sounds really nice and warm and fuzzy, like the language of equity that Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are always talking about. But this broader ideological worldview, which says it's not it's not their fault because they have this trauma. And the word trauma is used a lot now in relation to discussions of violent crime and not in not about the victims of those crimes, but about the perpetrators. And that's the point where I think a lot of people, particularly in those neighborhoods who also, when the media would actually talk to them, would say, no, we want more cops. These are the same people who are like, wait a minute, what are you talking about those those uh, murderers' trauma? What about our trauma? What about the fact that it is, again, the victims, the, the race of the victims of these murders tends to be the same. It, in, intra-racial murder is the is the go-to in this country. Unfortunately, people are people tend to murder within their own ethnic and racial groups. So the the people suffering, the way it's described by the elite, is not the experience of the people who are actually having loved ones killed in these neighborhoods. But that is a perfect parallel. I mean that is, that is the eerie parallel is that the essential liberal criminological ideas of the 1960s and 1970s were based in the notion that that uh, the civil rights movement and the uh, rise in consciousness of, of of America toward the incredible injustices that had been done to uh, to black people in this country um, had let loose forces that needed to be let loose, and that um, and that uh, we needed to treat people who transgressed with deep compassion and and to save them because um, they were they were basically programmed to do this by an unjust 
society. And then you combine with that uh, other stuff that is even happening now, though, much less to, to a greater degree, like, you know, the Supreme Court outlawing uh, capital punishment. I mean, there were, for four years, capital punishment had been overturned by the Supreme Court, a constitutional scandal because, in fact, capital punishment is the only uh measure, criminal measure mentioned in the Constitution of the United States as the punishment for treason. So the notion that you could blanket end capital punishment in the United States, it only lasted four years, but it was indicative of the mindset that had taken over liberal public opinion uh, just like just like this. And you could sort of say that the border stuff is kind of a parallel to capital punishment. Why was capital punishment so important? Why was the advocacy of capital punishment so important? Um, it was because capital punishment moralizes uh, law in some sense, and maybe in a bad way. And I'm not actually here making a case for capital punishment, but there are two a- aspects of it. If you deny the ultimate punishment to uh, uh, you know our system, you then ratchet down to, well, what is the ultimate punishment? Is it life in prison? Is it life in prison without parole? Well, isn't that a form of death in life? Maybe you can't really do that either. It's not clear where what the you know what do you do with crimes that um, that so horrify the conscience and so afflict us with a sense that uh, that an unimaginable injustice has been done. Is that the same? You 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 apply the same punishment that you would to somebody who you know is Bernie Madoff, like who also has to serve life in prison without parole. Is that just and legitimate? And so you 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 had a problem, which is that which is that this liberal public opinion, which believed itself to be totally in the right morally and and existentially, was crosswise of sensible common sense ideas about what was right and what was wrong and that is where liberal opinion is heading and that is where it is directing the the democratic party i will say this one thing which is that the the speed the celerity with which policies were adopted in new york state for example on 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 the revocation of bail and and that sort of thing the instantaneity with which crime increased civil disorder erupted uh, and the streetscape was poisoned was as was staggering just as you can see how as abe said just those couple of weeks around the riots uh, following the following george floyd were like the bat signal that it was time to go out and start shooting every start shooting people you were angry with it happened immediately it's like there wasn't even a lag. There wasn't even a sort of it seeped in over time. It was like a light switch. Well, but you're not giving yeah. proper, in my view, proper uh, um, deference to the the pressures that were put on society by the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic right. was probably the biggest trigger because it disaggregated it forced people who would otherwise have moderating influences in their lives to stay away from them, to not have them in their lives, <clears throat> to um, gravitate towards uh, probably disreputable people. And then, as you say, there was this moment that was, uh, you were given permission by the powers that be, by public health officials, by elected officials to come out, to get in the streets, to socialize. 
for the first time in months to have some sort of connection in your life with other people. And even though that manifested in a lot of ugly ways, not everybody was engaged in violence, but millions of people poured out into the street to take that opportunity. Um, and a lot of people took advantage of that opportunity as well, provided the, the cover that you were given by public officials to engage in criminal activity. But otherwise, in the absence of the pandemic, I don't think you would have had this kind of surge. And so we got to, you know, we can't just say that this is just a cyclical problem when that was a very extraordinary event that precipitated it. Look, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and uh, the, the the larger effect of the pandemic on uh, social cohesion and individual behavior and all of that is something that is going to take many years for us to process. And the consequences of it are going to take many years both to show up and make themselves clear and uh, to help us find ways to get beyond it. Um, uh, talk to any a parent of any teenager and they will tell you that the emotional impact of this period is going to resonate for a long, long time. And uh, what else resonates if you are a person who runs a small business is that HR issues can kill you if you do. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and those HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. So Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically to help small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. So change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. You have a dedicated HR manager available by phone, email, or real-time chat. They customize policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. No hidden fees, month-to-month, cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you want to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule that free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Uh, guys, uh Admiral Milley and I guess a defense secretary Austin, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the defense secretary are testifying today on Capitol Hill about the Afghanistan debacle. And Noah, um, we have now discerned yet another untruth or uh, uh, conflict uh, in the uh, account of what happened uh, in the weeks leading up to, or the days leading up to the fall of Kabul, uh, you want to tell everybody about it? Yeah, I just don't know quite what to make of it. Um, an NBC News report uh, dropped this morning, which alleges that <clears throat> there was this very fateful meeting between General uh, McKenzie, who's the uh, head of CENTCOM, and uh, the Taliban's political leader at the time, uh, Abdul Baradar, who's since been sidelined um, politically, but he was one of our chief negotiators. Uh, Wasn't he sidelined by a sidearm? Well, there was there was some chatter uh, right after the Cal- uh, Taliban retook Kabul that there was a firefight and Baradar had been killed and inside he, the presidential palace. But then he turned up. Oh, okay. And he's, as from all accounts that I'm aware of, he is alive, but his political influence has not survived that attempt. Nevertheless. 
He was an influential figure at the time of Cabell's fall. And NBC News alleges that McKenzie told Baradar in, in no uncertain terms that Taliban fighters are to stay outside of Kabul. If they enter Kabul, they will be struck, will execute our strikes. And Baradar replied by saying, well, listen, Taliban fighters are already in Kabul. There's very little I can do about that. Um, but, you know, we'll we'll do our best. And then they didn't do their best. Taliban flooded into Kabul, retook the city with stunning alacrity. And the United States did not follow through with its threat to execute airstrikes on Taliban positions. Now, this does not square with a deeply reported Washington Post piece that came out earlier this month that alleges that when Kabul fell, um, the Taliban were as surprised by this event as the United States. And Baradar approached McKenzie with an offer to allow the United States to maintain security over Kabul, effectively giving the United States sovereignty over this city and untold political influence over the formation of an interim government that the United States declined in favor of just holding the airport, which turned out to be a disastrous decision, as we now know. Um, so these two reports do not square, in my view. Uh, I don't know what's the truth of the matter, uh, and we're hopefully going to learn more about that today. They're testifying as we speak, both General Milley and Secretary uh, Austin. But um, briefly, um, one thing that we're hearing from these two officials as they testify currently right now uh, is that they're sounding notes that are in conflict with the rest of the administration. They talk about how they they understand that they're not dealing with a uh, an ally or even a partner. They understand that the Taliban is uh, a terrorist organization that has not broken ties with Al Qaeda. Quote, according to uh, General Milley, we have no illusions about who we're dealing with. Maybe, but the State Department sure does, at least if you're to take the word of, uh, of Secretary Blinken, that these are our partners now, invaluable partners. The only people who can help us execute our counterterrorism, deter and disrupt strategy in the AFPAC region. And in the, in the absence of those partners, we do not have reliable intelligence on the ground. Now, that's the truth of the matter. Uh, and apparently General Milley and Secretary Austin are willing to say as much, but state isn't and the White House isn't. So we're getting two very distinct pictures about how they intend to approach this new, very suboptimal reality. I was just going to say the two narratives could square somewhat in this, in the sense that the Taliban organizationally is not very clean. It's very ragtag. So if you have one representative, I think they met in Qatar, was it right? Who, who, who met with CENCOM who says, okay, we'll we'll do our best to stay out of there. But as you said, fighters are already in there. And then you have, you know, sort of other Taliban groups, there's sort of subgroups and whatnot flooding in, could kind of be, be, be somewhat beyond the hierarchical organizational control. But what, what's interesting to me is the threat that the U.S. made, if, if you take Kabul, will fire on you and then didn't, of course, deliver on, you cannot th- make threats while you're turning tail. And that is that is the the and, and of course you know we didn't follow through on it. Um, that is, I think, the sort of the larger issue that we're facing now. You can't you can't be tough on terrorists. You can't be you can't be strong in your defense of the U.S. while you are running away. But that is the nature of any retrograde action. You're you're unable to execute offensive operations while you're while you're in retrograde. Well, that's co- it's complicated because we were in retrograde after uh, Black Hawk Down after the the, the horrible you know assault. 
uh, on our people, and we 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 got our people out by basically destroying half of Mogadishu. Like we bombed the shit out of. I'm sorry to put it this way, out of Mogadishu. Uh, you know, as we as we retreated, that is one way of handling it, and we didn't do that. And obviously, Biden. The whole point was that Biden wanted to wanted to walk away, appearing to have done so bloodlessly. Right? I mean, he's a war ender, not a war fighter. So, um, and of course, all of this is kind of like a sideline to the major issue, which is how many Americans are still there? Are they being held hostage? What is the nature of the conditions under which they are and how many people who hold special immigrant visas and are therefore uh, legally uh, have the legal right to enter the United States and get out of there before they are killed as retribution? Uh, Afghans are killed for their uh, as retribution for their um, uh, alliance with the United States during the 20-year war. How many of them are there and what's going to happen to them? And that is actually the most important aspect of this conversation that or testimony that they're, they're, they're supposed to give. Um, Just yesterday is- we got, you flagged this John for us yeah. from a quote senior defense department official that there are still about a hundred Americans in Kabul, a number that is, and they said this is in flux, but that number is really static. It's not flux. It's become something of a, of a dark joke the extent to which the administration has relied on this this roughly 100 American citizens number. Again, eliding special immigrant visas, right. eliding visa eligibles, eliding uh, legal permanent residents in the way that, you know, if, if Donald Trump had done something like that, it would be objectively racist because, you know, these are, these are not the kind of people that the Stephen Millers of that administration wanted in, and yet they're pursuing a mirror image policy of what Donald Trump would have executed in the event that he was... Uh, he was reelected, and you don't hear anything along those lines about how you know green card holders are our citizens too. Remember how they filled up the airports? It was catalyzed, catalyzed an anti-Trump movement that materialized in 2018 as a as a strong backlash against the Republican Party, and you don't see any of that from the usual suspects. Uh, Christine, you have something to tell uh, tell the folks about our friends at the Tikva Fund. I do. Ready to. Thank you. I wanted to once again talk about Tikva Online Academy and its fall courses for 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th graders. Listeners of this podcast know that Jews should love America, that Israel is a heroic nation, and that Jewish history is exceptional. But how do we share these ideas and values with the young people in our lives? That's where Tikva Online Academy can help as a new take on Hebrew school that invites your children, grandchildren, or students to explore these propositions in depth and at a high level. Tikva's seminar-style classes meet live over Zoom on weeknights and Sundays for spirited discussion with master teachers and small groups of outstanding students. I'm very excited to be teaching one of these classes this fall on the ethics of social media, but there are many other exciting classes that are on offer, including Jewish Ideas and the American Story, Zionism and Israel's Founding Debates, Judaism, Science, and Technology, Introduction to American Politics, Epic Speeches of the Cold War, and Philosophy, Politics, and the Hebrew Bible. There's many more as well in these unique five-week seminars covering Jewish thought, Zionist history, American politics, and Western civilization. So to join Tikva Online Academy's community of ideas, go to tikvafund.org slash academy. That's tikva, T-I-K-V-A-H, fund.org slash academy to browse all the fall offerings and apply today. If you use promo code COMMENTARY at checkout, you'll save $50 on your child's first course. 
Applications are due September 30th. That's tikvafund.org slash academy and use promo code commentary. So inspire the middle and high schoolers in your life to Jewish excellence with Tikva Online Academy. Okay, I want to read you guys uh, something. Uh, uh, you know, yesterday there was a vote to increase the debt limit uh, and uh, all Republican senators voted against it. Uh, and so uh, they're going to have to do it in a different way. And if you read the headlines, it's Republicans refuse to raise the debt limit, which is true. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote, though. Okay, here's what um, here's what somebody said uh, yesterday. Here's what somebody said in explanation of, of, of a vote against the debt limit. America has a debt problem and a failure of leadership. Americans deserve better. I therefore intend to oppose the effort to increase America's debt limit. I said that was yesterday. It was not yesterday. It was March 16th, 2006, and the speaker was Senator Barack Obama, who was one of uh, 48 uh, Democratic senators who voted the entire caucus, who voted not to increase the debt limit. In 2011, facing the exact same circumstance as president this time, Obama said, Nobody likes to be tagged as having increased the debt limit for the United States by a trillion dollars. As president, you start realizing, you know what? We can't play around with this stuff. Raising the debt limit is important for the country, said President Barack Obama five years and 29 days later. So spare me the Republicans are being so wildly irresponsible garbage. They are. They are being wildly irresponsible. They didn't start it. They shouldn't be doing it. They should just vote to increase the debt limit. I don't agree with this strategy. I think it is irresponsible. The debt limit pays for uh, already, you know, prior commitments and not for, you know, future spending. Although, of course, obviously, if you don't pay for your prior (laughs) spending you are limited in some of your future spending but you know it does it does it does create the possibility of a national default which would be ruinous and catastrophic so i'm against it having said that shut the hell up like i didn't hear an entire country go absolutely berserk when democrats voted against increasing the debt limit uh uh Democrats can pass the debt limit without without a single Republican vote, just as Demo, just as Republicans did using various uh, maneuverings reconciliation. and reconciliation, that's, which of course the they trick. want to use they want to use for other purposes. And you can't, yeah, exactly. You can only use it so many times. <clears throat> like, yeah, Democrats had the same reaction in 2018 when it was a unified Republican government that led to that couldn't raise the debt ceiling. That was preposterous and radical, and it was. Um, and just like here, you know, but they're also talking about how these are debts that were run up under the Trump administration. It was all about COVID. We should all bear responsibility for that. And that's a tidy narrative, but it's not, it's one that elides what they're trying to do right now, which is to spend $5 trillion more that we don't have. And to put that gun to Republicans heads and say, listen, you're going to clear the field so that we can spend all this money that you don't want to spend. Yes. is a political trap that they would absolutely reject. Mitch McConnell says, listen, you want to use reconciliation for all this stuff. Use reconciliation to raise the debt limit and pay for what you want to pay for. Uh, that, to me, is perfectly right. reasonable. 
uh, not just a political maneuver, which it obviously is, but a legitimate political maneuver. Okay, but I, I just want to go back to one aspect of the reason I read the Obama quote and everything, which is uh, there are two ways of dealing with political realities or in, in discussing political realities. One is to say that something unprecedented is happening and that is changing the nature of the way our politics functions. It's very important to point those things out because some of that has happened over the last five years. Some of it happened during the Obama administration, particularly the I have a pen and a phone bit of trying to legislate from the uh, from the executive, uh, which crossed a Rubicon that you know we sh- really shouldn't have crossed, and other violations of norms and historical precedents and all this had continued under the Trump administration. But this is not one of them. This is a tried and true partisan tactic that has a solution, a ready-made solution at hand, which is that the party in power takes sole responsibility for the thing it wants, and the party that is not in power, that has very little authority except to sort of, you know, except to cohere and deny the majority some of the things it wants, uh, says, we're not going to put our fingerprints on this. We are not, we are not going to be part of the way that you, you know, the way that you get, get what it is that you want. And I am all for calling out broken norms. And I find it repugnant when the mainstream media basically serves as the handmaidens to uh, democratic propaganda about things that shouldn't be happening because they're so cravenly irresponsible when no such line was taken when the shoe was on the other foot. Well, they have to seize on this because everything else about all the other um, legislative disasters that are uh, sort of coming to a head this week is uh, solely because of the Democrats. So this is this is the one thing that 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 has, you know, some Republican fingerprints on it that to, to complain about. Fair enough. Now, let me talk to you guys about. Our final sponsor of the day, Aura. Um, most credit card companies do a good job of protecting you against fraudulent purchases. But what if a scammer files for unemployment in your name or your social media accounts are hacked? That's why you want to talk about Aura because Aura's protection goes well beyond your credit card. Between your photos, finances, devices, and connections, your world is more online than ever. You may have security systems in place, but what about your online life? Aura can sound the alarm if your digital presence is at risk. Aura provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sales, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Aura is easy to set up. It comes with a million dollars in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription. With an easy online dashboard, and alert sent straight to your phone. Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues for a limited time. Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash commentary. Now, we got to go, but I wanted to finish on one little note, if I could. Um, uh, 
people sometimes say, why are you so anti-Trump? Why, why were you so anti-Trump? What, is, what, what did Trump do? Like, how didn't he do things you liked and all that? And I, I'm not going to go into that. But I'm now, I want to reveal to you one thing uh, that I, I think makes the case, in my case, for why it is that um, I have um, uh, problems with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Stephanie Grisham, who was press secretary to the First Lady, uh, has a new book out. Uh, a tell-all, and uh, I know very little about it, but I know a one key uh, detail that um, I, I think should horrify all all knowing uh, people uh, in the book, and should explain to you my, my problems. Uh, at one point, according to the New York Times, she writes, "Mr. Trump's handlers designated an unnamed White House official known as the Music Man to play him his favorite show tunes." including memory from cats, to pull him from the brink of rage. Had I known that cats and the song Memory was something that pacified Trump's rages, I would have called for his immediate impeachment on those grounds. Doesn't that song usually invoke rage in people rather than pacify rage? Well, tragically, Andrew Lloyd Webber is a polarizing figure. So is Donald Trump. He, he should be. Other. Cats is one of the two or three most successful stage presentations in world history. But I, I, I don't care. Commentary is an elite publication. We consider ourselves, if you were on the scale of lowbrow to highbrow, we are much closer to highbrow than lowbrow. I do not like it that the President of the United States could only be calmed by hearing memory I don't like it. That is not what I want in a president. That is not what we should want from the leader of Western civilization. And I consider myself retroactively justified. And it does suggest be... that he might have enjoyed the live action remake or live action movie of Cats, which is itself an impeachable offense. I mean, I mean, the existence of the live action movie of Cats is itself the makes the case of the of our friend Saurabh Bamari and everything, that Western civilization itself took a turn during the Enlightenment that led inexorably to a horror like the 2020. Okay, but someone has an awesome yes. Halloween costume opportunity here to dress up as the cat singing memory to Trump. Have their friend be Trump and you be the cat singing memory. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, that maybe that alone can calm my rage. I don't have a music man to come calm my rages, to play, I don't know what they would play, The Folks Who Live on the Hill by, by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein might be the one that would calm my rage. But, you know, I don't have that, uh, but uh, that might that might work, the uh, picture of the Halloween costume. So if anybody ends up doing that, which is, I guess, in three days or four days, please send us a picture at podcastedcommentary.org and uh, we'll see you tomorrow for Noah, Abe, and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.